I'm Kiri. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends, us, chat about books and reading with another book lover. We find book lovers everywhere, authors of all types, teachers, booksellers, slam poets, and even some museum educators, just to name a few. And we're totally biased, but we think reading people are the coolest. Of course. So Carrie, this episode marks the end of season four. Woohoo! I know you're glad. <laughs> well, I'm going to be heading on vacation and we're going to be taking a little mental health and relaxation break for a couple of weeks. But new episodes are going to resume on July 7th. And we're excited about our first episode of season five, which is an interview with USA Today bestselling suspense novelist of 11 books, David Bell. He's got a new one coming out called Kill All Your Darlings. It actually debuts on July 6th, and it's all about the dark side of academia. And I am about 40% of the way through the book, and it is good. You have finished it. I've finished it, yes four stars. It kept me on my toes and I wanted to find out who done it. We're closing out season four with our guest, Ben Self. And Ben is a teacher and a contributor to Mockingbird, an organization that describes itself as being devoted to connecting the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. It's a progressive group and Ben runs their new book club, which focuses more on spiritual themes than religious doctrine. And it straddles the the secular and the spirit in fun and really culturally relevant ways, which is pretty cool. This week, Ben tells us about his reading life, why he took a sabbatical from his job to enjoy reading again, and why he wanted to be involved with the Mockingbird Project. They are reading some pretty interesting stuff from authors like Marilyn Robinson, Wendell Berry, and Flannery O'Connor. We had some really in-depth conversations with Ben. And so we hope that you'll enjoy this episode. But first, what's your weekend been like? It has been a hot one. It has been hot. And yesterday I had two social events, two reunions, one with family, one with high school classmates for our 30th. And so I'm really talked out. I'm talked out. I'm listened out. But I did want to say my bookish news is that I watched a documentary on Margaret Atwood, which was on Hulu. It's called A Word After a Word After a Word is Power. I watched that just because I wanted to watch something, but my husband and I have a couple shows, but we only watch them together. I went through every episode on Seinfeld and I want to watch something that isn't like Property Brothers. This is not anything like Seinfeld. I would guess that this might be kind of deep and dark. Was it deep and dark? No, it was I mean, it was just about her life and how she got started, her childhood. It was really kind of fascinating. Like, I learned things about her that I never knew. And I actually uh, learned that her partner, they had been partners for like 40 years before he died in 2019. He was also a writer. And I had never heard of him. So it opened me up to maybe another writer to check out. His name was Graham Gibson. So it was a good hour about a writer whose work you know I've read The Handmaid's Tale I've got Alias Grace downstairs I think you had recommended that so it has motivated me to you know maybe put Alias Grace on my summer reading list you definitely should put that on your summer reading list you turned me on to a television show that now I think I'm further along than you you are yeah and it's completely underappreciated I had never heard about it But I read something online. I think it was for people who like mysteries. And the name of the series is called Counterpart. And it was originally on Stars. Now you can find it on Amazon Prime. The main character is played by J.K. Simmons. He's one of those actors that you may not recognize his name, but if you look up his picture, you'll totally know who he is. He won an Academy Award. I can't think of what he won the Academy Award for. He won that Academy Award for, it was called Whiplash. But this series is science fiction, but it doesn't necessarily feel like science fiction. It's about a world that has two realities, kind of. Is that how you would explain it? You know, it's just like our world, but then there's another one just like it. 
It's and like a multiple a, universe theory, you know, that there's potentially unlimited universes happening at the same exact time. Right. And so this is set in Berlin and there's one little tunnel that you would take to get over to the the other world. And so the thing that's interesting to me about it is J.K. Simmons plays, it's supposed to be the same person, but in alternate realities, but they're two different kinds of people. And one of them is a badass spy. And the other one is sort of a meek, mild man who's been in the same low-level job for 30 years. He does such an amazing acting job. The name of the character is Howard Silk, but you can tell which Howard it is just by his body language and the expression on his face. It's basically an espionage series. But it's also sci-fi. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it gets enough love. You should check it out. My husband and I started watching it, and I think we might start season two today because it's really good. Oh, you know what? My cat's talking to me, which um, <laughs> which well, relates to part of my life. Uh, <laughs> you I, have a friend who has been making herself known in yes, our recording. I do. So I know that you know we have teased each other about how you're a cat person and I'm a dog person. And I don't think that I have shared with our listeners that we have a new cat, which is a kind of a big deal because my husband really, really, really does not like cats. And my daughter, she wanted to take one to college with her in the fall. And so last November, she adopted a little cat that she has named Blueberry. And ever since then, Blueberry has decided that she loves to lay on my recording desk, especially when I'm recording. But it's important for me to say this today because as I was editing this episode, I realized that there are parts of the recording where I think you might be able to hear her purr because I think that she was laying a little too close to the microphone. But I have really enjoyed Blueberry. I like having a little friend who will, while I'm working, lay up here. Unless, of course, I'm recording and then she makes herself kind of a pest. Mine thinks that whenever I am talking to you, that I am talking to her. And so Uh, she's like, I want to be part of this conversation. Maybe she's got a secret reading life I know nothing about. And she's trying to impart that to me and you when she hears us recording this. I don't know. Well, and the problem is I close all the doors to make audio better, obviously, but she does not like closed doors. So sometimes even if I'm recording and she's not in here, she will start banging on the door and it sounds like jabbing with a boxing bag, just like (laughs) against the door. And she's this tiny little cat. But she can make a ruckus. That's for sure. Definitely. All right. Are you ready to talk to Ben? Let's talk to Ben. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Ben, you've worn lots of of different hats job-wise and live lots of different places. So tell us just a little bit about yourself and what you do when you're not being a reader and uh, how you came to Louisville. Um, Well, that is a long story. My dad is actually from Louisville. My mom, she grew up kind of overseas. She spent a big part of her childhood in India, and then she ended up coming to boarding school uh, in Eastern Kentucky. She has the same multicultural background that I have. Her dad was English. Her mom was American. They were missionaries. So long story short, she met my dad uh, when she came here for school. Uh, They're both teachers. They started out teaching in public schools here in the U.S. And then after about six, seven years of that, I think, they decided to go and teach overseas. So I was born in Florida, and then we moved to uh, Cyprus. So the little uh, island nation of Cyprus in the Mediterranean. Lived there for two years. They taught at the international school there. And then we moved to Denmark, lived in Copenhagen, Denmark. Again, they taught at the international school in Copenhagen. For those who don't know, international schools are basically just private schools, usually uh, English language schools. Sometimes you might have like a French international school, but they mostly cater to the expat community, you know, the children of businessmen and women, uh, diplomats, doctors, lawyers who want to have their kids get an American style or Western education. 
So that was where my parents taught. Uh, so after Denmark, we moved to Germany. That was where I started high school. Then um, after ninth grade, we moved to Saudi Arabia. They taught at the American International School in Riyadh. And that was where I graduated from high school and you know went to prom and all that jazz. Kind of a weird place to finish high school, but it was interesting. And I moved back to the U.S. for college. I went to a little a liberal arts school in Indiana called Earlham College. So I decided to go to go get a graduate degree in international affairs. Uh, I did that in Canada, actually. So I lived in in Ottawa. Long story short, eventually came back to Kentucky and decided I wanted to be a teacher like my parents. So I started a teaching program, an MAT program, and I got a job almost right away. They have gigs now where you can start your master's as a teacher and get a, a kind of temporary certification and go ahead and start working. So I did that and I taught for five years, mostly middle school English. I also taught some social studies and public speaking, things like that. And I'm giving you the full rundown here. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just amazed because when you said I've lived all over, you know, like I thought, oh, he's being euphemistic a little. He hasn't really lived all over. No, yeah, you really of. have. <laughs> bring it full circle here. Um, after five years of teaching, I decided to take a year off a sabbatical. And so that's what I've been doing for the past year. And now I'm going to go back to teaching pretty soon here. I started as a middle school English teacher, and I think every English teacher who teaches in middle school deserves a sabbatical every five years, <laughs> just that, to that keep your amazing. sanity. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of respect for people who teach middle schoolers as well, having done it. I, I like the middle schoolers. There's a lot of energy. Let's put it that way. Well, tell us about your lifetime reading and writing habits. Were, were you always a person who's been interested in books and reading? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked me that question, actually, because I haven't. My dad is an English teacher and a prolific reader. Growing up, though, I had essentially textbook ADHD. I was very active and impulsive. And reading was just a challenge. Uh, I think I actually learned to read a little late, even though both of my parents are teachers. It just developmentally, it took me a little while. And my parents read to me all the time growing up. But as far as like sitting down and reading myself, I always found that a bit of a struggle because I would get easily distracted and there's always something else to do. And so I think I've actually almost felt a little insecure about that for a long time. And somehow I ended up becoming an English teacher anyway. But in college, I uh, was an English minor and a history major. So I still had to read a lot. But I was always one of those students who was not quite finishing the, the books. I, I think it, it just it takes me more time. So I'm a bit of a slow reader. But my reading outside of school has always been pretty limited, like two or three books a year. So a big part of what I wanted to do with my sabbatical was learn how to read again. And I almost felt like I had like a, a dark secret as an English teacher, because I was constantly trying to get my students excited about reading and pushing them to read more. And yet I didn't read that much outside of, you know, what I was doing for my job. And it's not that I don't love reading. I love literature. I love poetry. I love nonfiction as well. It's just a bit of a challenge because it requires focus and extended periods of time. And there's always something that, that requires a little bit less energy, less focus, less concentration that I could do. So often the heavy reading kind of has been pushed to the edges or corners of my life. Anyway, so during my sabbatical, I've been able to read a lot more and that's been great. It's been awesome. And it's also obviously led me to get into a couple book clubs, so. Well, that's a perfect segue. Although I want to say, I think that's awesome. I doubt that you're the only English teacher who's ever felt that way. I'm sure yeah. that there are lots of English teachers who just get burnt out or aren't enjoying reading themselves. And it's hard to instill that in a student if you're having a hard time feeling it yourself. And yeah. it seems like, you know, taking that sabbatical or taking that little bit of time off to get to the point where you're enjoying reading again probably does wonders then for your enjoyment of, of your profession and your sure. students, you know. And, and it might alleviate some of my guilt, although uh, there, there's always more to read. But I still haven't read To Kill a Mockingbird or Moby Dick. So I feel like I have to get through those uh, before the end of this year because I don't know. Can I try to persuade you? Just don't even do Moby Dick. Okay. <laughs> 
I tell you what, before you read Moby Dick, there's a very, very small book called Why You Should Read Moby Dick. (laughs) I read Moby Dick first, and then I found that book, and I wish I had read them in reverse. So I would read the short book first, Uh and then if Moby Dick sounds intriguing, then (laughs) do it. All right, I'll do that. Woo! Moby Dick is... (laughs) That's just a lot. It's a lot. It's a brick of a book for sure. Yes. That might not increase your reading enjoyment. Let's put it that <laughs> okay, way. Okay. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> so we wanted to talk to you about a book club that you started leading for a magazine called Mockingbird, and it's a virtual book club. So I want you to tell us just, first of all, what Mockingbird is and about the book club. Yeah. So Mockingbird is... A, a Christian non-denominational online ministry, but it, it's very laid back <laughs> and it's all about connecting the faith with what, what's going on in, in everyday life and what we're experiencing in, in culture. And so that could be connecting it to literature, uh, what we're watching on TV, what we're seeing in politics or just about anything. And so I've been a follower of the blog for probably eight years now. Uh, It's been around for a little over a decade. And they're based in Charlottesville. And they hold occasional conferences. And they also put out a a quarterly journal. And then they also have some publications as well. But I've really connected with them. I really like the people. And I like the vibe. It's very uh, kind of open and and interested and curious in culture. I found that a lot of faith-based cultural outlets are, are a little bit uh, narrow and and often very much narrows like what they're interested in reading or what they're interested in consuming. And I don't do that. I, I like a little bit of everything. So I, I've really enjoyed being connected uh, with them. And during my sabbatical, I basically realized I was reading all these books. And of course, we've all been living through this pandemic year, which has been strange and tense and uh, lonely and boring and everything else. So I was like, you know, I think I would enjoy reading some of these books that I have on my list with other people a lot more than just reading them for myself. And so the first book club I started was not the Mockingbird book club, actually. It was just a book club with some friends, mostly secular friends, non-religious friends. And I reached out to them and I had like a long list of books that I was interested in reading. Most of them would not be by authors who were people of faith. They're just, it's just good literature. <laughs> so I reached out to them and I, I said, you know, why don't we start a, a book club and it can be really laid back and we'll just meet once every two months. So we've done Kindred by Octavia Butler and a man called Uwe. <laughs> and, uh, now this is not the Mockingbird group. This is, this is the, the one I started first, just with right. some pals. It's the same kind of format. We basically just get online and talk about the book for an hour and talk about life. And then we say, see you later. And and we meet up again two months later. So after two sessions of that, I was really enjoying myself. And I was like, you know, I have enough time to do a lot more reading. And it would be cool if I started another book club. (laughs) Um, But one that maybe focus a little bit more on books with spiritual or religious themes. So that made me reach out to Mockingbird. And I said, you know, does does this sound like something you guys would want to do? It was still the spring. Most people still had not been vaccinated. And so I thought uh, this would be a way to help us get through the next few months and have some community after this year where we have felt really detached and sort of socially starved. (laughs) And so they said, sure, why not? So I put out a, a feeler blog post and I created a, a Google form with a long list of books that had some sort of resonance with the Mockingbird themes. And then I let people vote. And we ended up getting like 90 people. Oh, wow. Way, way more than we expected to get. 90 people who, who were interested and signed up and filled out the Google form. Again, we picked out like six books, the top six. And we've been going through those. We've done two so far. Uh, the one that we did first was called Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. It's a, a novel that is basically a retelling of the Cupid and Psyche myth from one of the uh, side characters. It's a really fascinating book. Of course, it has a lot of spiritual, religious, moral themes, as you would expect with C.S. Lewis. And then the second one we just finished up 
was uh, Flannery O'Connor's Wise Blood, mm. which is, if you know anything about Flannery O'Connor, you probably know uh, it's kind of a strange book. And there's a, a lot of things to talk about and unpack. So that made for really interesting uh, book club sessions. So as far as like what we did with the 90 people, <laughs> basically we split it up into three different groups and assuming that we wouldn't actually get 30 people per session. And of course we assumed correctly, only about a third of the people show up on a regular basis. And that's fine because 10 people is, is about a good size for uh, a book club. So each time we meet, we have like a Thursday night session, a Saturday afternoon session, a Sunday afternoon session. And each time we meet, there's like 10 people from all over the country who are tuning in. So are you moderating all three groups or do you have other people who are helping you? Yeah. So originally I didn't want to moderate all three groups. And so I reached out to Mockingbird and, and I was planning to do it on a volunteer basis. And then of course they were like, well, how about you go ahead and moderate all three groups and we'll just pay you. And so that worked out. So I'm getting paid to talk about interesting books with interesting people. So you can't beat that. That's an awesome job. I yeah. want that job. <laughs> I, I want to ask, though, what are the other books that you have on deck that you hope to read with the Mockingbird yeah. book club? The next one we're doing is by Walker Percy <gasps> called The oh. Movie Goer. I love that book. Oh, good. Oh, <laughs> love it. You know, I'd love to hear what you have to say about it, actually. Um, I, haven't, I haven't read it yet, though, so don't spoil it. Um, go on, go on. <laughs> and then the next one is a Marilyn Robinson book called Jack, which just came out recently. Marilyn Robinson, I don't know if you all know, uh, has written kind of a series yeah. um, that started in like 2000 with a book that won the Pulitzer Prize called Gilead. It's not like a series, I, th I think, that requires you to have read all the other books in order to get it, but th it's all based in the same sort of time frame and world that she has built, at, which is, I think, like a, a small town in Iowa, a fictional town in Iowa. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I really like her. Uh, sh she's just a interesting writer and I, I have read some of her essays as well and I enjoy reading her she's an interesting woman and then the last two are Wendell Berry's Jaber Crow and of course Wendell Berry's from here in Kentucky and then we're doing two novellas by Leo Tolstoy The Death of Ivan Ilyich and Father Sergius so oh. I haven't read either of those yet but that should be an interesting one to finish us out you're reading some heavy hitters there <laughs> it's definitely i don't uh, mean that derogatory i mean literature. that in a good way no right it i don't know i i think it's it's not supposed to be beach reads because or at least the way i originally framed it was these are books that will give us something deep to talk about and it's not that i have anything against beach reads i, I love beach reads right but i think there's something to be gained from forcing yourself to tackle some heavier material sometimes and it helps that i'm on sabbatical. So I'm able to do that. Did you have some sort of contact with Mockingbird first? Or did you just sort of out of the blue contact them and say, hey, would you like oh. me to start a book club for you? Yeah, I have had contact with them. And I've written for them somewhat regularly over the last like four years. The other thing I think is interesting is the books that now I've not read all of the books that you have talked about. But it seems like they're not what I would consider Christian fiction, right? Like they're more Books that definitely have a theme of spirituality. Am I off base about that? Or well, is that... I mean, to be honest, I, I don't know what Christian fiction is, but I don't think I'd want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I teach at a cottage school for homeschooled families. And so when I first heard about the job, I've been there. This will be my, I think, ninth year. But one of the things I asked them was because there are, okay, like the Left Behind series, right? You all have heard of that. Yes. Uh -huh. Okay. So my question to them was, are you wanting me to teach books like that? If I'm going to put them in air quotes, like Christian books, or do you want me to teach a wide variety of literature from all over the world and look at how those relate to God, morality, Christian beliefs, this smorgasbord of theology, right? And so they were like the second one. And I said, well, good, because if it's the first one, I'm not doing that. But if it's the second one, there's a lot that you can unpack there. So just from me having looked over Mockingbird, 
Dan, it seems like that's more what I imagine your book club to be. And I mean, most of the authors that we're doing and that were on the original list are, you know, some kind of Christian, right? Mm -hmm. or, or they have some religious faith. And so like all six of the people who, you know, C.S. Lewis, Walker Percy, Marilyn Robinson, Wendell Berry, and Leo Tolstoy were all some kind of Christian, but they definitely were also great artists, great writers, and they dealt with Christian themes in interesting and challenging ways. Mm -hmm. So you don't feel like you're getting a sermon or, you know, a simplistic version of Christian themes, right? Something that doesn't feel like it really matches the sort of challenges and, and struggles of real life. And there are a bunch of others that were on the list that also considered like great writers who were some kind of Christian and dealt with challenging themes. So like uh, we had G.K. Chesterton on there, Graham Greene, Willa Cather, Thornton Wilder, Susanna Clark. And then there are writers that we, you know, might do next time that are not necessarily Christian, but that deal with a lot of really interesting themes, religious, moral, spiritual themes. So writers like Ray Bradbury who I, as far as I know, wasn't particularly a religious person, but he has very interesting moral and spiritual themes in his science fiction. That's the kind of thing that we were, we were going for. I love, I feel like I want to have a shirt made up that says some kind of Christian, because that's, yeah. that is the category I would put myself in. I'd be like, <laughs> right. oh, I'm some kind, I don't know. But, exactly. you know. Well, there's probably freedom in that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm also interested, you have moderated all three groups, both times, yeah. obviously the conversations are going to be a little bit different, but do you find that with each group you're talking about very different things? I think that's a good question. Definitely the, the tone of the conversation varies quite a bit. And the, some of the things that we get into are quite different. And so like with the Flannery O'Connor book, I know that most people probably will not have read Wise Blood, but it's a weird book and it's hard to figure out what she's trying to do. And so I'm not going to spoil the ending, but there's was just a lot of different perspectives on what she meant by the ending. So in the first group, the Thursday group, people had a more positive view generally of the ending. And then on the Saturday group, people tended to feel more troubled by the ending. Made for very different uh, conversations. And, and as a moderator, I wanted to allow them to go in whatever direction they wanted to go in because I had more of a, a kind of positive perspective on it. And I found it quite interesting to listen to other people push back and talk about what they found troubling with the ending. So I, I, I get a lot out of it too. What's the demographic of the members like? Do you think that it skews as far as yeah. gender or age? Well, it, it definitely is mostly white. And so I think that's partly because Mockingbird itself is based out of an Episcopalian church. And as far as I know, most Episcopalians are tend to be white. And I think that might have something to do with the demographic. But as far as age, they're all over the place. And also, they're all over the country. We have people who are right out of college, basically. And we have people who are in their 60s and 70s and retired and everything in between. And then we have People from Texas, California, Washington State, from Virginia, people from New England. We had one lady tune in from Ireland. They're all over the, the continental U.S. It's nice to feel a, a small measure of community with people who are scattered around, which, of course, is something I'm sort of used to given my background. Yeah. With preparing, you know, like the preparation that you felt like you needed to do in order to, to moderate this. What did that look like? So Ann Patchett. We went to see her speak here in Louisville. She was great. She's a great speaker. But one of the things she was talking about was the way that she interviews writers. And so she'll do a bunch of research on the author and, and their work and prepare questions and then basically not bring the questions to the interview, mm -hmm. right? Which kind of scares me. The questions are like something, kind of a crutch that you can lean back on when the discussion starts to get stale, but uh, the more I moderate these discussions, the more I feel like that actually works pretty well. And so I still have the questions available uh, if I feel like I'm stuck or if the conversation is dragging a bit. And I also pretty much always have some quotations, whether about the book or from the book itself, 
on hand that I want to read to kind of spark discussion. But for the most part, I will prepare the questions and have them in the back of my head and then just allow the conversation to progress relatively fluidly. And I I think I like that format better personally. It feels like I'm not trying to guide the discussion too much. And when you're talking about a book, stuff's just going to come up. And sometimes it's okay to just go down that rabbit hole, you know? Because your book club and the book selections have a spiritual bent, has it ever been a challenge to keep a discussion on track because faith is such a personal thing? Yeah, that's a good question. It hasn't yet. We kind of established some guidelines up front, like share what you think, share what you feel, but you know, do so in a way that's respectful and, and don't give advice, basically, mm-hmm. to other people, right? Share it from your own heart, your own experience, but don't try to get other people to think what you think or do what you do. And that was one of the things we sort of established up front. And so there is disagreement about religious themes that come up. So for example, Flannery O'Connor's background is very Catholic. And in Wise Blood, there's a character who does penance, right? He basically like punishes himself for his sins, which most of us modern folk probably find a little off-putting, right? The idea of like self-flagellating. Mm. But we talked about that in the book because I, I was like, do you think she's saying this is a good thing? Or do you think she's saying that this is necessary? Does it make sense to you in the context of, of the story or with this particular character? Anyway, so we had a good discussion about that. And, and most people in the Mockingbird book club are Protestant and have that kind of Episcopalian flavor. Penance is not something that they're big on, but I still think it was an interesting conversation. And it was something that there was some disagreement about. And some people felt like more uncomfortable with that than others. And the biggest thing is I encourage people to share from their own lives and their own experience and connect whatever the themes are to their own life. Because to me, you know, what is theology or spirituality or any religious ideas? What are they good for if they aren't relevant to what's going on in your daily life or they, or you can't connect somehow with them? And I try to bring it back to like, okay, well, how have you seen this played out in your own life? Have you ever felt the need to be penitent or you know, how do you deal with your own guilt when you've done something that is really terrible? In in the book, the guy like murders somebody. <laughs> I mean, he did do something terrible, right? And and that makes it more interesting also, because we're supposed to see ourselves to some extent in the characters that we read about in a piece of literature. That's why they're interesting. That's why they're meaningful. And so we connect whatever's going on in the story to some extent to our own lives. And I think we do that without even thinking. I mean, it's just natural. That's a great way to to have a good discussion, I think. Among people I seem to know, there seems like, you know, there's the people who, when they think about their spirituality, they have a hard time wrapping, wrapping their heads around the idea that spirituality or God can be in the secular. Right. You know, it's like God is over here and <laughs> humans are over here and humans have to do like this stuff uh, uh, over here to be godlike. And right. I've always personally just been like way more interested in finding God in the secular. Like, I don't know if that's just how my brain works, but to me, that has just always been way more compelling than me trying to, I don't know, like not be human, <laughs> not be of this world. I'm like, right. I am of this world, <laughs> you know? So I just love what you're doing with this. Cause I, I, I'm actually, I'm like, can I come to the movie goer <laughs> discussion? Cause I'd love sure. to listen to that. I just think it's really fascinating, but I could see that depending on who the person is and maybe how they were brought up, that could go against maybe some of the things that they were brought up believing. I, and I think that kind of like bubble, cultural bubble way of experiencing Christianity has been really prominent in U.S. Christianity anyway. And I find that really off-putting. And I think that that's partly why I like Mockingbird, because I I did not grow up going to Christian schools. I didn't grow up only reading, you know, Christian-proved books or listening to Christian bands. I mean, I did listen to some of that, but for the most part, I just listened to whatever was cool, right? And Mm -hmm. whatever I was into. And sometimes it was pretty darn profane. (laughs) And (laughs) 
but I totally agree. I'm, I'm much more interested in trying to see what God is doing or how, say, the Spirit is moving people in secular contexts, because I think that if God is anywhere, God is everywhere. And so it's like kind of crazy to, to look for God only in very narrow contexts. That doesn't make any sense to me. Like C.S. Lewis has this phrase, and I'm actually not a huge C.S. Lewis fan, but patches of God light in the woods of our understanding or something like mm. that. And I, I like that idea because I think that most of us, even people who are very religious, our day-to-day lives and our sort of stream of consciousness is very secular, like wh- wh- whether we want to admit it or not. And how is there something spiritual, something of God that is speaking to us in the context of whatever is going on in our very secular lives at work or in the music we listen to or on our drive to the grocery store or something. Uh, I find a lot of meaning in seeing where those themes show up in literature and just about anything else. So I'm wondering what the challenges have been in doing a virtual book club. And because this one is intended to be virtual, does it feel easier than in real life book club that was maybe forced to be virtual because of COVID? I I do think that it's a bit of a struggle to have this Zoom book club format, just trying to keep the connections alive, you know, through Zoom and and other digital formats is just a challenge. It's not the same. It's still really good. It's better than nothing for sure, but it, it lacks something. It's hard to quite pinpoint what, but it doesn't feel quite as enriching, warm, and comfortable when it's digital. Like there are times that on the Zoom calls, I, I actually feel really awkward like at the end because everyone else is muted and I'm like, well, it's been great to talk to you guys, blah, 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 blah. And it's just silence, right? <laughs> and and I'm like, okay, Everybody well, thinks. I guess we'll see you next time. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I hate the, the endings. They're, they're like so off-putting for me because, you know, in real life, you would give people a hug or walk them out the door and, and it's just friendly. Yeah. But then there's the other problem of like some people don't always have a good connection. Sometimes people interrupt each other. They'll start at the same time. So there's just more of those little moments of awkwardness. I will definitely continue doing the Zoom book club format uh, as long as people like at Mockingbird, for example, want me to, because there are a lot of people who want to, to participate in this specific type of a book club with these kinds of books and these kinds of people. And they don't have that option available to them in their local community, even in a non-pandemic year. So like, I'm happy to keep doing that, but I definitely think that if I had to choose, if I was given the choice between an in-person book club and a Zoom book club, I'd obviously choose the in-person one because I like being around real human beings rather than you know, pictures of them. Our book club met in person. And then during the early on with quarantine, we went to virtual. And then in the fall, we went back to in-person outside. And then in the winter, we were back to Zoom. And there's something, and I don't know why this is, but it's like we can interrupt each other in person and it's less weird than when we interrupt each other on a Zoom. And totally, I don't know why that is. Yeah, there's something about the flow of conversation that we all sort of learn to be a part of and like when to interject and how to do that gracefully, I guess. And you can't do that on Zoom. It doesn't really work. And it might be sometimes because there's like a lag or or just because you can't see people's faces or because most people are on mute and so they have to unmute themselves or whatever. But the, the flow of the conversation is more stilted on Zoom. It just always is. Yeah. So I know you said you had 90 people respond to your first call out for people yeah. interested in this. Is Mockingbird still taking new people or h- how is that working? So because all of the, the three book clubs have basically proven to, to have like a core group of about 10, we will still take people if they want to join. Uh, originally, we cut it off because it was just way too much. Like we, we, we can't handle this many people. But at this point, there have been a few other people who've read something about the book club and reached out to the Mockingbird folks. And they asked me and I was like, sure. I mean, anything up to 15 is fine. I think once you get over 15, it would probably be a challenge uh, mm-hmm. to manage that conversation because then you're inevitably 
going to have people who feel like they don't have enough opportunities to talk. And actually, for the Zoom format, under about eight is a struggle because inevitably four or five people are going to be people who aren't very talkative. And it's hard to keep the conversation going if people are a little bit inhibited. And, and if you don't have very many, then you, you're more likely to have more people who are, who are like that and just want to listen, which is fine. But like to keep the conversation going, I, I need people to respond. Right. It's a discussion, not a lecture. Right. 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 <laughs> so were you surprised by the response or, and was Mockingbird surprised? At yeah, the they response, were totally you know? surprised. Yeah. And I think a lot of organizations have done interesting online programs. Mockingbird hasn't done that much. I mean, they they have a blog and then they, they've done a lot with podcasting. So they've had several podcasts that have have been really successful. They haven't done Zoom events before, at least not until we started the book club. And so I don't think they really knew what to expect, um, but they did not expect this level of interest. Well, Ben, thank you so much for telling us about the book clubs. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Ben Self and with Carrie. Carrie, I have no idea what books you have been reading this week. So I am waiting with bated breath. I cannot wait. What is it that you're going to tell me about today? Uh, The Thief of Always by Clive Barker. This is actually a book that my kids read in fifth grade. Now, Clive Um, Barker, I mean, he's a horror writer, right? Yes, yes. My seventh grader reread it. And now I'm reading it. And I I just want to share, it's got an amazing first paragraph. It starts out, The great gray beast February had eaten Harvey Swick alive. Here he was buried in the belly of that smothering month, wondering if he would ever find his way out through the cold coils that lay between here and Easter. And I thought that was a pretty amazing oh, wow. opening paragraph. Yeah. And so both my boys enjoyed that book. And so I bought it. But it's about a kid who is bored. And sometimes when you wish for something exciting to happen when you're bored, you get it. In this case, it is some weird little guy named Rictus who comes into his window and they go off. Like I said, I'm just only about 50 pages in, but it's definitely weird. I never expected myself to read a Clive Barker book, but here I am. So He's one of those authors, because I used to read a lot of Stephen King when I was a teenager, but I didn't really read other horror writers, but I remember the name Clive Barker from that time. Mm-hmm. As I think he's a contemporary of Stephen King's. So I looked, you know, I'm always trying to get my middle schooler to want to read stuff. And so he has a book called Aberat, I think is what it's called. And I've heard or read that that would be something that a middle schooler might enjoy. So yeah, I'm, I think we I'm actually getting that. had that in our middle school library at Oh, the cool. school I used to work at. So Cool, cool. Okay, so I put that on reserve at the library. So maybe if he read this one, I can go, hey, here's another one. See what you think. I know you said this is weird, but do you know yet? Or does it say on the, the book jacket? Is it going to head towards creepy, scary? Or is it just sort of strange? Yeah, I mean, I think it gets into creepy, scary, but kid appropriate. It's yeah. not going to be like gore. It's called a fable. Like when you see it online, they call it a fable. And it is for late intermediate and then middle school and up. I mean, I'm just going on the recommendation of my sons. Well, that's good anyway. enough. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Ben? What have you been reading lately? I finished a book called American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Yeah, um, that's on my list. Yeah, which is really fascinating. And I mean, it's like 580 pages, so it's pretty long, but it goes fast. It's a very engaging read. And it's kind of like dark fantasy. It's a little bit salacious in places. Not a um, Neil Gaiman children's book. Um, <laughs> I think they've actually turned it into a sh- TV show, which I haven't seen. I, I don't want to tell you too much about it, but basically... It's, it's about all of these people who have come to the United States and Im- immigrated from various regions of the world, and they bring with them their traditional gods. So whether it's like Norse gods or gods from you know different parts of Africa, or lots of different gods. In, in the book, they basically are human beings, but as gods, and they live and survive as long as they are still remembered and worshipped. Apparently, a lot of them are slowly being forgotten, and it's fascinating. It's They don't go into 
Christian gods, obviously, that would be more of a challenge to write about. But a lot of the characters who are gods are basically from what we would think of as like mythological Mm -hmm. figures. But it's really fascinating. And it's just a great read. I mean, it's just a fun read, I thought, personally. But definitely rated R. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. All right. Well, Amy, what have you been up to? I finished a book called and I, I just want you to know that I spent a good five to 10 minutes right before we started recording practicing saying this author's name. <laughs> but I read a book called World of Wonders by Amy Nezicum Tottle. I think I said that right. I just want you to know that her last name has 15 letters in it. So, <laughs> <laughs> But this is a book of illustrated essays that ties an animal or a plant from the world of wildlife with an experience or connection that the author makes with her own life. So this book came onto my radar last holiday season when the national bookseller Barnes & Noble named it as their book of the year for 2020. And it was a book I had never heard of, and it was essays, which I wouldn't normally think that they would choose as their book of the year. And it was about nature, no less, by an author I'd never heard of with an intriguing name that was hard for me to say. So that was enough for me to say, yep, I've got to put a hold on that at the library. And this was back in January, and I just received this book last week. That's how many holds there were for it. So apparently I am not the only one who was intrigued by this book. So the author is primarily a poet, but this collection takes an essay form with lyrical language that is a nod to her poetry roots. And so each essay is dedicated to an animal, an insect, or plant with an accompanying illustration. Just for example, there are essays about the flamingo, the corpse flower, the dancing frog, and a firefly. And she ties it in with her own life experiences. So one of these essays that I thought was funny is where she compares the dance that the bird of paradise does, their mating dance, to the Macarena that they did at her (laughs) wedding reception. So that was a funny one. But then there are others that are much more, I guess you would say, deep with social issues and things like that. There's an essay about a plant called a touch-me-not, and she talks about that plant's property where it can fold up into itself when it is touched and that protects it against things that would harm it. And she writes, How I wish I could fold inward and shut down and shake off predators with one touch. What a skill, what a thrill that could be. Touch me not on the dance floor, don't you see my wedding ring? Touch me not in the subway. Touch me not on the train, on a plane, in a cab, or a limo. Touch me not in a funicular going up the side of a mountain. Touch me not on the deck of a cruise ship. Touch me not in the green room right before I go on stage. Touch me not at a bar while I wait for my to-go order. Touch me not at a faculty party. Touch me not if you're a visiting writer. Touch me not at the post office while I'm waiting to send a letter to my grandmother. Let me and my children and everyone's children decide who touches them and who touches them not. Touch them not. Touch them not. Oh, I don't know. It just gave me chills to read it. But the essay actually that gave me the biggest punch in the gut was one that she wrote about a peacock. And her father is from India and her mother is from the Philippines. And the peacock, especially in Indian culture, is glorified. In fact, it's the national bird. So she recalls an experience in elementary school when she had just moved with her family to Phoenix. And she's the only brown girl in the class. And the teacher announces an animal drawing contest. So Amy, the author, chooses a peacock, of course. And when the students turn them in, the teacher announces, some have misunderstood the assignment. Some of us will have to start over and draw American animals. We live in America. And and then she writes, I turn my drawing over and blink hard, trying not to let tears fall onto the page. Does she think peacocks can't live in this country? I saw peacocks at the San Diego Zoo the summer before, and my father once told me that roads are even blocked off for peacocks in Miami, where they can be seen strolling in the suburbs. So what happens is she ends up redoing her drawing and she does an American Eagle and she ends up winning the contest, even though she doesn't think her drawing is nearly as good. And I just love the subtext of this, the metaphor of the peacock sort of equating to the immigrants in our country. And she gently is asking us to think about the way we treat new people to our country. And not only do they arrive here, but that they can thrive here. So this book has a really warm feeling to it. She sort of wraps you up in a hug that includes this little collection of wildlife. And while it's meant for adults, I think middle schoolers and high schoolers could get a lot out of it as well because the language isn't overly dense and her writing is fairly straightforward, but in a lovely, lovely poetic way that celebrates the world around us. 
Yeah. I used her essay in that book because that's the book you got me for Christmas. Yes. Yeah. And I used her essay Narwhal mm. to teach my middle and high school students creative nonfiction because that one is masterful because it was just amazing how she combined a lot of those literary elements that we think about personification, imagery and metaphor and simile. And yet she she brings you know a lot of science and facts about animals and biology into her essay. This was a five-star read for me. I just thought it was amazing. Yeah. So it, yeah. it sounds fantastic. It sounds really fascinating. What? How do you spell her name again? <laughs> it's I'm, N- I'm just messing with you. I'm, I'm messing with you. <laughs> it's 15 letters. Do you have your pen ready? <laughs> right, right. Just guess. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to take another short break. And when we come back, Ben is going to answer his three about me. We are back with Ben Self, and we're going to ask him his three about me. So you mentioned in your intro, you were talking about lots of different places that you've lived, but let's focus on when you went to grad school in Ontario, Canada. You went to Carleton University. What was it that attracted you to that school, and what did you love about living in Canada? Oh, man. The number one thing that attracted me to that place and and going to that school was the fact that it was way cheaper than my options in the U.S. Um, Really? Yeah. Getting a a graduate degree in Canada is like half the price of getting one in the U.S. And uh, they gave me a scholarship. And so I was like, forget this. I'm going to go up there for three years, brave the winter weather and the darkness and get my really great, super cheap degree. Um, (laughs) So that was cool. College university is just insanely expensive now in the U.S. And I'm surprised that more Americans don't actually go overseas. Well, now that you've talked about it, the secret will be out. And Yeah, right. Hey, it's fine <laughs> with me. Go, go to Canada. So um, was the application process any different? I mean, I don't really remember at this point, but I don't think it was different enough to be memorable. And the, the biggest issue, though, is that there are some fields that if you get your degree in Canada, it's going to be harder for you to get a job back in the U.S. So you have to keep that in mind. So, for example, if you went to nursing school in Canada, it doesn't perfectly align with the, mm-hmm. the standards and the curriculum and all that in the U.S. And so getting your whatever your degree would be kind of translated uh, to a U.S. market is going to be harder. And the other thing is that a lot of times in graduate school, the connections you make can help propel your career forward. And if you're not planning to stay in the country or the place where you're getting your degree, that can be a challenge as well. That's why I would highly recommend if you take this option that you arrange some kind of uh, internship or a lot of times with graduate programs, they have uh, short-term job programs for graduate students. Do something like that so that at least you can get some experience under your belt and make some connections that are outside of the, the university setting. And I did that in my middle year working for the government of Ontario, which was great. As far as like what I miss about Canada, there are lots of things I miss about Canada. I miss not having to worry about uh, healthcare, but probably just as far as something fun, one of my favorite things about Ottawa is that they have this big canal that freezes over every year, although uh, in recent years it it has been a bit of a struggle because the weather has been a bit more hit and miss. But um, it usually freezes over and they kind of drain the canal down to really low level. And then they run over it with these Zambonis, right, The uh, that smooth out the ice. And yeah. so everyone just skates. A lot of people skate downtowns. They skate to work. They go oh, out wow. skating, you know, on Saturdays or in the afternoons and evenings. And they have these little, in some places, like little fires set up that, where you can warm your hands. They have uh, stands that sell pastries. Beaver tails. Is that sounds delightful. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like it's, a it's, Hallmark it's movie. <laughs> Well, when you live in a climate that is insanely cold and dark, you have to find a way to enjoy yourself. Um, Yeah, absolutely. figured it out. Okay. So question number two, you have a bachelor's in history and liberal arts majors get a lot of flack. People say, what are you going to do with that degree? And I say this as someone who studied English and I married someone who studied psychology and I have a son who recently graduated with a degree in political science. So I'm always interested in talking to other people with liberal arts backgrounds. So would you do it again? If so, why? And if not, what would you study instead? Yes, I definitely would do it again. 
I think it's hard because a lot of it comes down to what you think education is for. And I think a lot of people have taken a very economic view of education. And so that has caused people to devalue the liberal arts uh, because they think that I need something that's practical and it's going to lead me directly to a good salary. And so they go into engineering or nursing or whatever, and there's nothing wrong with any of that if that's what you're interested in. To me, that that's a little scary because I think that Liberal arts are really important for understanding the world, understanding human nature, understanding our political system, and being able to think for yourself. So I think they have value in and of themselves that is separate from what you're going to do with your career. Mm -hmm. But I also think that the liberal arts degrees often have some surprising value in different kinds of careers. If you're going into, let's say, a tech field, it helps if you have the ability to come up with ideas for marketing or for how to communicate or how to write a good uh, letter to someone or what kinds of approaches will work with a client. And those are things that, that often a liberal arts degree can help with. But, you know, ultimately, I think the best thing about liberal arts is that they're just interesting. And I know this probably is not going to do me much credit or do the liberal arts field much credit, but I kind of wish I could just stay in school and just get <laughs> one degree after another. <laughs> if, if someone would just pay me to go to school, I would just try about about everything. I really yeah. enjoy that. And maybe that makes me weird, but, but I think it's just fun to learn. It, it makes me sad that people take such a, uh, I guess you could call it a kind of practical or an efficiency view of what they're going to do in college. And maybe that's just because we live in a really competitive world and it's kind of a luxury, I guess, to be able to study something that you actually find interesting. You know, I also knew a lot of people who got a liberal arts degree and then went on to get something else, right? That was a little bit more technical. Maybe they studied computer science or something and they were able to use their liberal arts background very effectively in their career. So I know I said my husband studied psychology, which he did, but he then went on to medical school and is now a physician. Yeah. But I know when his first year of medical school, there were lots of other students with him who had majors like, you know, Russian literature and comparative religion and things like that. And I think a lot of people assume that if you want to go into medicine or something, that you need like a biology degree or a chemistry degree. Right. But actually, a lot of the medical schools at that time, now that's been 25 years ago, but the med a lot of medical schools at that time really liked the liberal arts majors because it gave you a wider view of humanity. And that's basically what you're doing is working with humans. Yeah. And it helps you have compassion and just be able to relate in all kinds of different ways. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, so. the other thing I would say is similar to the question of why should you read? Mm -hmm. right? What's the point of reading fiction or literature? Right. A lot of people would say, well, read nonfiction for the information. But a fiction is just for fun. And it is for fun, but it's not just for fun. It teaches you how to live. It teaches you how to understand other people and how to understand the world. And, and it it stretches you out emotionally. And I think that that's hugely important for the quality of your own life, but also for the quality of our community and our society. You have to be able to relate to other people and, and kind of put yourself in their shoes. And literature is a way to do that. And if you don't read, I guess you can get it from other forms of art, like, like TV. I, but it, to me... It often is more powerful when you uh, read it in a book because it has a way of getting inside you. All right. Last question. You and your wife adopted a puppy <laughs> during the pandemic. So tell us about your puppy and what is the thing she does that makes you laugh? Oh, boy. So her name's Ella, although actually we have a much longer name. Eleanor Roosevelt Fig Pudding... <laughs> Aquitaine or something. I don't know. Anyway, something like that. No, she's great. We went to pick her up in Ohio from a farmer and she's a half poodle, half beagle. A lot of energy, doesn't shed, which is great. She's still a puppy. Been kind of annoying lately, actually. Um, she's, my, my parents have been around and so she's just got constant attention. And of course, during the pandemic, all animals have had tons of attention. So she expects it now. <laughs> And if there's any point in which she feels like she's not getting her fair share of attention, she is clingy and it paws at you. 
which is cute, but gets old <laughs> when you're trying to work on something. As far as the things she does that make us laugh, well, I love how she will pick up sticks and bring them home. For a while there, she was doing that like every single walk. And and we started collecting them because we wouldn't let her bring them in the house. So we still have a box of her sticks like right outside our door. <laughs> I just think it's cute. She gets it in her mouth and prances down the sidewalk. And she seems so proud of herself, you know, like she's really achieved something. And now she can go home with her catch for the day. You know? I'm impressed that she has the attention span to carry it all the way back because I several of my dogs occasionally will find tennis balls on our walks. Right. And they desperately want to bring it home and they'll carry it for about a block and then they drop right. it and then it's gone sometimes she gets distracted and drops it but yeah it, it is kind of remarkable her commitments right she yeah. she'll pick it up especially if we've kind of turned the corner and are heading home she knows that once we turn this corner she'll pick it up and she'll carry it 300 yards i mean <laughs> but i mean it's been great and eventually we'll probably have kids and a puppy is a good way to learn not uh, live solely for yourself, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a very small step in that direction. I know it's not the same thing as having kids, obviously, but uh, it, at least it forces you to start to think about like, okay, what are the things I need to do for this other human slash dog that I am responsible for? Right. Yeah. And, and well, and it gets you a little bit used to having to deal with some gross things yeah, that too, related right. to some, some other <laughs> yes. creature. So, yeah, exactly. well, Dan, it has been super fun chatting with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. If you would like to find out more about Mockingbird and their programs, go to their website at www.mbird.com. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.